Well, good morning, everybody. Well, I am glad to be back in Faith Builders. And now we'll jump into Second Peter. As you turn in your Bibles, we're in chapter 1 still. And the last couple of times I taught back in December, we were looking at verses 5 through 7. And it was really just a transition point. As I've said over and over again, the, the book is ultimately about confronting error and false teachers and warning the church. But Peter begins his letter with some profound theological truths of the work of God, of what He did through His Word, through His power to save us, and not only to save us, but to give us everything we need for life and godliness through His power, through His Word. And so the initial verses were all about what God has done for us in saving us and giving us faith and allowing us to be a part of His family. And then Peter, beginning in verse 5, quickly transitions into the practical results of our faith, what is supposed to be the characteristics of our life because we came to faith. I'll read verses 5 through 7, and it's important because of what we're going to be doing today, but beginning at verse 5, Now for this very reason also, meaning all those theological truths that we spent many weeks covering in the first four verses, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Again, these are just the practical outworkings of our faith. There's no room within the body of Christ for laziness. We're supposed to exert our efforts and energy. God did everything to save us. But then once He saves us, He gives us things to do. As Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So Peter is talking about this very thing. What characteristics should we be exhibiting so that we can walk in the works that God prepared for us? And I'll quickly remind you of what we went through. I, I did it in the context of a, a trip on the freeway of the mile markers to Christian maturity. But all these things fit together and they show what should characterize our lives. And we're supposed to work at it with diligence, with effort. In your faith, supply moral excellence. We start off by the understanding that you can't develop Christian maturity without faith. Now, Peter is writing to believers. He's already said that God's given them this faith, but it is foundational. And then he says moral excellence, which is really a commitment to keep pressing on. He uses that word of Jesus. It's the conviction to be like Christ in everything, to not let up, no matter how difficult things are. It's a purposed heart that says, I'm going to be like Jesus, even if it costs me. Then he talks about knowledge. And again, over and over, this book is talking about the knowledge of God. And here, it's not just information. It's the practical application of wisdom. The ability to know and apply God's truth in real life circumstances as they come at us. Then he mentions self-control. And it's really the ability to control our passions. The flesh that still wells up in us and wants to respond in the wrong way. Self-control is the inner power, as one commentator said, to control one's own desires and cravings. Perseverance, 
standing strong, bearing up under things. As, as life can be a heavy load, it's the determination that I'm going to continue on. Godliness is comprehensive. It certainly includes behavior, but it really goes beyond that into thinking God's thoughts after Him. We want to follow Him in our actions, but we do that by thinking as God thinks. We have the mind of Christ that's living that out. And one of the practical manifestations of that is brotherly kindness, our love for other believers, caring for them. And he builds to a crescendo with love. And again, this is a very quick summary of a couple of weeks. But he knows that if love isn't present, then we're not doing anything. I think 1 John 4, 20 and 21 captures the ultimate thought very well. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. God is love. Because of his love, he saved us. We're supposed to manifest that character quality as well. And that's really the brief backdrop to lead up to verses 8 and 9, which is what we're going to spend our time covering this morning. So I'm going to continue reading, and I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And we're going to go through these verses relatively quickly. I'm going to cover them today, and I'm going to explain in general terms sort of an overview of what's mean. And then I'm going to dive in and give you a lot of scriptures that really are expressing the same truths because it all comes together. And what Peter is doing here is relatively simple. In two verses, he paints a positive and a negative. In essence, it's the two options that you have, theoretically, as a believer. Although I'm going to suggest to you that if you choose option two, then you're one of those times where you have to wonder about your salvation. So my outline is very simple. I'm just following his positive negatives. And so I've phrased the outline this way. Two responses to professed faith. Two responses to professed faith. And if I give you a test later, number one's the correct answer. Number two's the wrong answer. But really, Peter is saying exactly that. There's two responses. There's two choices. There's two paths. Which are we on? So two outcomes of professed faith. The first path is this, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Another way you could say it is productiveness, but I use fruitful because of the language of the text. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it jumps out at us. For if these qualities, well, the qualities are what we just talked about in verses 5 through 7. Those spiritual disciplines that spring from a faith given to us by God that results in increasing Christ-likeness. And he says, for if these qualities are yours, 
but that looks different in English than the way it was originally written. In English, we often see that and say, if means maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Peter's actually making a statement, though, to believers. And remember, even though he's dressing falsehood, he's dressing false teachers. And I think every book of the Bible has a lesson for those who are pretenders. He believes they have the truth. He has introduced them as genuine believers. That's the way he started the book. So he's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's not really saying, if you have these, he's saying, you do have these. You do have these. That's a mark of faith, but they should be increasing. They should be growing. This should be the pattern of your life to bear more and more fruit, so to speak, in this way. We have these qualities. We have to cultivate these qualities. It's an imperfect analogy, but sometimes you can see in a small kid that they just have natural talent at something, be it athletics or music. And generally, when you see a kid like that, you try and encourage them, get them instruction, cultivate it, help them practice. My refusal to practice is why my piano career only lasted one season because I wanted to play baseball. But the point is, for anything in life, we understand you might start with a certain skill set, but then you've got to develop it. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to grow it. There's a sense in which God gives us these spiritual qualities and he identifies us in a new way such that we can see with new eyes something different. But it doesn't just happen that suddenly we're holy. We have to work at it. And Peter is really showing us the benefits and the motivation for why we would work at it. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, this is the ultimate goal of the Christian walk. There's warnings over and over again in Scripture in encouraging us to grow, that we have to keep going, that we can't stay children and infants. This is a lifelong process. The language he uses makes it clear this is not a growth spurt. This is the pattern of life. It does not stop. And if we take seriously our responsibility before the Lord to cultivate these new character traits that he's given us, there's a specific outcome. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The double negative, as it was written, is emphatic. And it pictures the hard work that's put into this conduct bearing positive results means if you're growing in godliness and Christ-like character, you will be useful and fruitful for God's kingdom. It's interesting that Pastor Steve was talking about the faithful servants today. They were given, they had a certain skill set, they were given, and then the faithful ones produced more. That really is the same type of concept. Jesus talked about an opposite response, Matthew 13, 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world 
and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's not who we are to be. We're supposed to be growing and learning. And as we do, we are producing spiritual fruit that is of value to the work of God. And this phrase, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, it's this emphasis on knowing Jesus, of knowing God and knowing His Word, not just from an informational standpoint, but in living it out. And I'm not going to go into depth right now. I probably will with some later scriptures, but I've already alluded to the fact in prior teachings that Peter was addressing in part false teachers those who were leading people astray and would demean the Word of God. He wanted them to know the truth versus error. Chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about false prophets. And says, there'll be false teachers among you. Part of what was happening was that there was a group of people who were saying, we have the true knowledge of God. You might have those scriptures, you might have some things, but we've got the secret knowledge. That's a contrast with what Peter's saying. He's making it clear, true knowledge is only in Jesus Christ. But the false teachers were trying to get disciples by saying, I've got secret info. That's what the Mormons do. They talk about Jesus. But the old days with their TV commercials, another testament of Jesus Christ, as though such a thing existed. I'm no expert. Others have ministered amongst them, but Muslims talk about Jesus. They revere Jesus as a prophet. But it's not the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter really is focusing on what we do with the knowledge that God has given us And how we increasingly produce fruit by cultivating more and more of that knowledge. As I was thinking about how Peter was phrasing things and how it all builds together of God giving us faith and the faith and we have His Word and we are equipped to know things and He's given us eyes to see and He's given us His Word and we have that true knowledge. It's a precious thing. The Apostle Paul talks about that at length in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. Paul summarizes how crucial true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ really is and what it does for our lives. Philippians 3, beginning of verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view in the in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed, to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Again, in writing to the Colossians in chapter 2, 
He was writing to a church that he hadn't been a part of, but beginning, I'll read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet when we have all of this wisdom and knowledge, it's supposed to result in us living differently. James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 2.20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So all of these are pointing to the fact that when we are a part of the body of Christ, we're being called by Peter as is consistent with the rest of Scripture, to grow in our faith. We are those who must produce fruit. We quote often the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And preceding that in Galatians 5 are the deeds of the flesh. Christians are supposed to look a certain way, not as an artificial exterior thing like the Pharisees, but we're supposed to be that way because God's changed our heart. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness, and now we have to walk in it. Jesus made it clear. The fruit tells a lot. Luke six forty three to 45 For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for, the, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Speaking of false teachers, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty, So then you will know them by their fruits. So Peter's not treading new ground. Really, he's restating teachings of Jesus himself. And he's saying, look, we're putting this standard in front of you. If you walk in this, God's given you these abilities. God's given you all you need for life and godliness. His power has equipped you. His word is available to you. He's given you the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We'll know you by your fruits if you're increasing and growing. Again, he's not treading new ground. I'll come back over and over to it because it just impresses upon me that every time I teach at Lakeside, I feel this way. Second Peter 1.12 And I feel a certain way, meaning you're well, well taught. Steve is one of the great Bible expositors that I've heard. Peter said to his hearers, 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. That's what I feel like I do every week. I know you know many of these things. I think you know all these things, but it's just the exhortation of the reminder that God puts in His Word that we must walk in them. That's all I'm doing today is reminding you of the truth. 
So again, Peter is writing to believers. He's encouraging them. He's saying, here's the roadmap. This is the path to please God. That's the correct answer. Two outcomes are professed faith. The first is fruitfulness. But the second is blindness. Again, on the test later, that's the wrong answer. Two is wrong. The second outcome of professed faith is blindness. Verse 9, it's an interesting verse. It's very simple. He says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, I'm going to develop this a little bit because there's one little phrase in there that's a little bit confusing. But in the big picture, it's clear what Peter's saying. If you don't manifest these qualities, there is a problem. Again, he's writing to believers, but anybody hearing this letter in the church would have to evaluate to make sure that those qualities are present in their lives. Because if you lack these qualities, you're blind or short-sighted. Again, he's not talking about a momentary weakness, a momentary sin. He's talking about looking at the pattern of your life and you don't see any of the things that are there. You don't see any of the qualities. They're just not there. So you don't see self-control. You don't see knowledge or moral excellence or perseverance or godliness or brotherly kindness or love. If you don't have those, he's saying you're in trouble. These words are ultimately synonymous. People will debate blind or short-sighted. They're two different words, but the overall picture is the same. It's the inability to see yourself as you really are. An inability to recognize the spiritual problems that should be evident with a life of professed faith that doesn't have any of these character qualities. A person thinks, I am okay, and yet they're blinded to their present reality from a spiritual standpoint. The Bible paints this picture over and over. And, and this always gets me worked up because this was my life for many years when I claimed to be a believer and I wasn't. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That, that was the problem with all the Pharisees that Jesus was constantly rebuking because in their hearts they were good. We're, we're, we're checking the box. In fact, we're superior to you because we check more boxes. They trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own evaluation of things such that they were patting themselves on the back and rejecting the Son of God. I think the book of Revelation paints a good picture of people in this condition. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle John says this. Let me pull up the different reference. 
He's writing to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It's a spiritual cluelessness. The Bible warns over and over again about people who have a certain knowledge of Jesus, a certain knowledge of God, but it's not a saving knowledge. In James chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, he was rebuking people with orthodox theology. What do I mean? You believe that God is one, you do well. That was part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A Jewish person saying that was stating correct theology. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They've got correct theology, they're going to hell. Because they don't truly know Jesus. And it's interesting what he says immediately after that verse. I've already read it. Chapter 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In other words, lip service doesn't fool God. Many people in churches start out in churches and they're apostates. They walk away. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown they are all not of us. I've gone over and over in my own life, much less in teaching, to the parable of the soils. Because I think one of the parables of the soil describes many of the conversions you hear about in evangelistic outreaches. And I don't minimize evangelistic outreaches. Don't miss understand what I'm saying. But as Jesus in Mark 4, verse 16 explained the rocky places, he says in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. That describes a lot of American church growth. Somebody heard it. Hey, I like that message. I'll follow. Verse 17, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. They're gone. And what follows is the seed among the thorns, where the important things of the world, riches and wealth and daily life crowds it out. I won't read it, but if you go to Matthew 13, there's the parable of the wheat and the tares. One of the things, the pictures that I see in this that just jumps out is that at some point the wheats and the tares are occupying the same place. And apparently they look enough alike that Jesus said, well, wait, wait, wait. We'll separate them out later. You don't want to grab the wrong one. And then, of course, in Matthew 7, I think the most haunting words I know of in Scripture Verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The warnings are everywhere. Peter's not treading new ground. 
But he is acknowledging the reality that there are many people who profess faith, but it's not genuine, it's not real. They say they love Jesus, but they don't really love Jesus. They say they're a follower of Christ, but the reality is they're just following their own desires. And Peter says, he who lacks these qualities, these spirit-produced qualities, these godly qualities, is blind or short-sighted. And then he says, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And I've read a lot of commentaries on this. And in no way is this saying that somebody who's genuinely saved can truly forget those things. What he's picturing here, and I'm convinced by several commentators that I really respect, this was a very important issue in the early church, was the public testimony of baptism. And baptism didn't save anyone. Baptism didn't purify anyone. That's not what Peter was teaching. But baptism was a public symbol, just as it is today, of saying, I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And more than one commentator suggested that what's being pictured here is someone who actually went through the process of giving a public proclamation and saying through baptism, I'm with Jesus. And now they're like, I don't think so. But didn't you say that? And it's like they forgot. They've walked away. It's really somebody who's an apostate. They're clueless and they're blind. And they have no memory of the one whom they once professed to love. So really, this is just a short, practical summary of the roads in front of us. I pray that everyone at Lakeside aspires to possess these qualities and grow and increase in these qualities and produce fruit and live a life that builds up the kingdom of God But the warning is, is if you don't have any of these characteristics in your life and you're not working to increase them, they're not there, then even though you think you see, you're actually blind. I'm going to close with a passage from James that I really think sums up the gist of what Peter is exhorting us with in this section. Going back to verse 5 all the way through our verse 9. And it comes from James. And I've read parts of it. But I think James accurately captures exactly what Peter is talking about. Which isn't surprising since the Spirit of God that inspired Peter is the Spirit of God that inspired James. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, every... One of us here, when we're thinking rightly, wants this blessing if we know Jesus. 
we want to be doers of your word. Lord, we are painfully aware of our failures, of our rebellion, of the moments in every day when we could choose to obey and we choose disobedience. Lord, forgive us for those. I thank you, Lord, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that as we go through teaching like Second Peter and we see this high standard and this high calling that we're supposed to be pressing and working towards godliness, Lord, if we've gotten slack, I pray that we will repent, we'll confess our sins, knowing you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, Lord, any time in a church like Lakeside, of any numbers, we can't necessarily see it, but there are tares amongst the wheat. There are unbelievers mixed into the pews or the chairs with believers. Lord, I pray for salvation for them. Even as Pastor Steve was preaching powerfully about heaven, our future home, Lord, it's only reserved for those who have faith. And so I pray that those at Lakeside today who are blind spiritually will be given new eyes to see. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We again lift up all those who are hurting, those who need physical healing, those who are suffering. And we pray in all of this that you'll help us to be effectual doers of your word so that we are fruitful and useful to your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.